Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Lisa Nunn about her book, 33 Simple Strategies for Faculty, a week-by-week resource for teaching first-year and first-generation students. Lisa, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Dana. It's wonderful to be here. We're excited to have you back about um, and talking about your other book. Um, uh, Lisa, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Lisa Nunn. I am a professor of sociology in the, at the University of San Diego in the sociology department. Um, that's kind of my formal professional world. I'm also currently the director for our Center for Educational Excellence, which is our pedagogical development center on campus. Um, but of course, I'm not always working and my professional life isn't my whole life. Um, I'm also a California native. Uh, my family live nearby and I spend a lot of time with my nephews and my sister and my mom and stepdad. And um, what else about me? Let's see. I like to hike and backpack and I really love to travel. And I'm just thrilled that we are starting to be able to travel again freely. So I am looking forward to a new like open doors um, to the world <laughs> here coming up. Yes, I think we all are. I think we all are. We were just talking before we taped about how kind of just, um, you know, in the last few weeks as things are opening up, the social schedule has just, you know, kind of blown up. Yeah. Um, so that's exciting. It is exciting to th- start thinking about travel and planes woo, um, and, you know, going places. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. Um if you would, maybe tell us a bit about what inspired you to write this this book, 33 Simple Strategies for Faculty. Hmm. I never actually intended to write this book. This book was not part of the project that I had in mind. Um, it, we already did an interview on the book that was the idea, mm-hmm. College Belonging. And so mm-hmm. I had this um, research project going on college belonging and interviewing first year students in their very first semester in college. And I'm interested in belonging. And so I, some aspect of that, you know, at the time I wasn't sure what shape or form that was going to take, but some aspect of belonging at college is about feeling good in your classes and feeling like I can do this, right? Like I, I belong in college. I'm, I'm smart enough to be here. I'm competent enough to be here. And so I had all these questions for students about, you know, how it feels to be in the classroom for them. And, um, you know, we know that not every student shows up at the doors of college equally prepared for college academics. So I was really curious, you know, students who come from K through 12 experiences that, um, you know, weren't as glamorous or as well-funded or as, um, you know, sparkly, shiny um, academic performance of the schools as some of their counterparts, right? Students who come from rather mediocre K through 12 schooling experiences, how do they feel? What does that feel like to be in class, sitting next to people who you think, or it becomes obvious that they, you know, they, they're a lot better prepared than you are. Um, so, okay. So I'm asking students all these questions like, tell me about your favorite class. What's that professor doing in there that's working for you? Tell me about your least favorite class. What's that professor doing that isn't working for you? And I just got all these incredible um, details from students. And 
they're telling me about things their professors are doing that are just wonderful. And so I'm taking notes on the side, right? We're having our interview and afterward, I've got like no, a notepad going with all of these great things that I want to start doing in my classes that, you know, uh, came through these stories from student interviews. And also all of these things they were telling me about their least favorite professors that I realized some of them, I do, I do those things. And it had never occurred to me that me doing X, Y, or Z in front of the room or having this kind of assignment or this kind of criteria for my grading um, would land so badly on some of my students. Like, I just had no idea. And so I also was keeping a running list of things to never do again. And um, I found that really useful. <laughs> and I you know, shared it with some of my colleagues. And we have a, a special program for first-year students on my campus. And they asked me to put together like a weekly email blast. Like, okay, give us a tip each week. Or maybe I came up with that, but they were on board. I don't remember how it started. But <laughs> the book, before it was a book, was a, a a weekly email blast to all the people who teach in this special first year program on my campus. Um, and I wasn't going to do anything more with it than that actually. But a friend of mine from graduate school, we did a writing retreat together, Stephanie Chan over at Biola. She really encouraged me this one weekend on a writing retreat that um, we had organized to just make it something that I could share with other campuses that I could share with other people and, you know, have it be on this little email. So Boy, that was a long journey to answer your question, but um, I didn't set out to write this book. Like this, this book kind of found me. Mm. Well, I think that's great, and I love um, you do talk about that in the introduction, and I love the origins of this book um, be because of that. That it was it started as you know just a simple do's and don'ts from the rich narratives you were getting from your interviews from students directly from students and. Um, and, and it's um, just so, so listeners know, and hopefully they will pick up the book. It's a small book. It's not, it's not really overwhelming at all. And, and, and there's an, a nice introduction and then in, and then a week, like, uh, you know, a week by week, I think 16, maybe weeks, 15 weeks. And, 15. and each chapter has quotes from students, um, that relate to the strategy that Lisa lays out and then the rationale for the strategy. So it's, it's very readable. Um, and you can, you know, pull it off your shelf and scan that week in, in, in a few minutes and, and get some great ideas. So I know sometimes people feel like a, a book is such a commitment and this is really, um, user-friendly in that way. So I want to make sure listeners understand that and know that, um, um, and you kind of spoke to this, so we don't have to linger too long here, but I do want to make sure to say that or, or, or ask about this, because one of the first things you do in the book is to address the reality and research on high school preparation for first generation versus continuing generation students. Mm -hmm. And talking about high school preparation moves the conversation of student success from students' abilities to their academic skill sets. Um, and while faculty may understand this distinction, we hope, um, students don't always experience it this way. Um, so would you talk to us a bit about why naming this distinction it was so important to the conversation and to the book that you, you, you really, it's like the first thing you do in the book? Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear you um, frame it as students really not understanding this distinction. I think that's probably true, but I've thought a lot less about that, to be honest, and a lot more about um, the faculty perspective. And this is something, you know, that was somewhat true for me, but also, you know, I'm a sociologist of education and it shows up again and again in um, research on uh, concepts like cultural capital. But mm -hmm. um, this, 
this idea, this sense that when you're standing up in front of the room and there are some students who, who know the answer when you ask a question, who volunteer a sophisticated comment that speaks directly to the heart of the issues you're discussing in class or can really nail the details of the maybe um, laboratory experiment that you've got going on. From our perspective in the front of the room, that can, that, that can feel like smarts. That can seem like, oh, she's really bright. She's really good at this. Boy, she really knows what she's doing. And it can feel like she's, she's got the intellectual capacity or the, the, yeah, she's got the smarts for this. And someone who struggles and is a little slower and can't quite get the details right and um, fumbles with the nuances of the concept, um, that can feel like maybe they maybe they don't have the aptitude for this or the intellectual um, pieces put together. And that is just not, that is just not the, the way to approach um, recognizing who our students are in the classroom and, and where they're at and what they bring, right? All of that is really due to how much practice students have had over their lives at critical thinking, at writing up a lab report, at um, <laughs> raising your hand after you fully articulated a question in your mind and knowing what a, a sophisticated sounding question sounds like before you even raise your hand um, to contribute such a, a thing to a discussion. Uh, these are things, these are skills that are learned and practiced. And some of us have been practicing them our whole lives long, our whole lives long. Some of us um, and others of us just haven't, right? Some mm -hmm. students arrive at college with very little critical thinking practice and they get there, they get there over their college trajectory, but they, they may be, yeah. They um, may take more time. Yeah. 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 They're, they're maybe not impressing their professor out of the gate in the first weeks, months, couple of years of college. Wow. And, and, um, just real quick to, to kind of comment on that. I think, you know, there's, Oh, sometimes we can do a better job, I think, of, of helping. I mean, a lot of times I think we could do a better job of, of showing how you actually do that critical thinking work um, and step-by-step and, and -step what that looks like and, yep. and scaffolding for that in our classes. Um, I, so yes, I, I, I have a background in student success and I'll probably talk about that a few times and it's because I loved your book because of my background in student success. And I worked out of, um, when I was at the University of Kentucky, I worked and taught out of there. Um, academic support unit. And I taught courses specifically, um, you know, problem-based um, courses specifically targeting, you know, students on academic probation. And we did that. We scaffolded for how do you critically read? How do you critically think? How do you critically engage this college level material? Um, and, and it's just something that oftentimes isn't taught. Um, and so if students haven't had that prior to college, they really you know, even in college, sometimes they're not taught how to do that. And so they have, they're trying to figure that out as they go. And that exactly. does take a lot more time on your own and, and you're watching other people. And I say that, you know, my question of saying sometimes don't, students don't experience it that way. They don't interpret it that way because, you know, they will probably interpret it a lot. A lot of students will interpret that it's me. 
that it's my innate yeah. ability and my intelligence level versus someone else's, not so much my preparation and my practice and the skill set that, and, it, and when we talk about it as a skill, it, a skill can be learned yeah. and a skill can be practiced. Mm-hmm. It's not about innate ability at all. So I, I just wanted to make sure we start there because you started there. And I think it's a really important distinction in this conversation around student success. Um, and and is going to continue to be really important as we you know are coming living through this pandemic and very you know challenging um, end of high school experiences for a lot of students um, and, right. and with so I think this is even more salient um, and and has been salient for a long time but is even even more so moving forward. Um, I want to read a quote um, and it's a little lengthy but I just um, I think it's really important and, and again it's it's from the beginning of the book um, and then I was hoping maybe you could just you know comment on it um, so also very on in the introduction you describe the many strengths of first generation students and you did that in this book and you do it even more so in the college belonging book um, but but from there you state quote our goal should not be to make first generation students become more like their continuing generation counterparts exactly. Rather, our goal should be to help transform the university, our own classrooms, if not beyond, to attend to the wider set of educational histories, adult responsibilities, and cultural sensibilities of our entire student body, rather than the narrower set of lived experiences that many of us imagine that a, quote, uh, typical college student has had, end quote. So could you talk about that a little bit more about we're not necessarily trying to replicate in, in all ways, you know, continuing making first gen into continuing gen because they do come with their own distinct set of strengths. Oh yeah. Thanks for that. Um, so exactly. Um, the, let's start with something like, um, assignments, right? The way that we design our courses and our syllabi and the rhythm of the semester, the the norms of higher education teaching, the the way we all are taught to teach, um, to create a syllabus, all of those things. Uh, Let's just talk about one example. So due dates, right? I have an assignment. It's due on this particular day at this particular hour. If it's not turned in by that time, it's late. And it's a little bit up to the professor about how organized or in it, organized, that was a judgmental way to say that, um, how far in advance to give the assignment prompt to the students, um, how detailed that assignment prompt or instructions should be, right? All of that's based on the professor's ideas about what they want to do. Um, also, like what the grading criteria, all of these things, right? So if I'm a student who does not fit this um, typical mold. So what I'm driving at here is everything that we do, including down to like this one detail of an assignment due date is based on a set of assumptions about who our students are and what their lives are like. And those assumptions are really in, in much of higher ed, not all of higher ed, but much of higher ed, they're really based on this idea of the traditional student. This Mm -hmm. is a young person without um, a lot of commitments, like domestic commitments of their own, right? In fact, we encourage them to live on campus in dormitories where they have no domestic commitments other than getting along with a roommate. Um, And it's this person who is free from work obligations, who is free from economic stress. Um, And as my continuing generation students in my research study describe it, they say things like, my only job right now is to focus on school. School is my job right now. My parents keep telling me that what my like I that the thing I need to do is to focus on school, right? That and they're free as much as possible from all other demands on them. So 
if I'm a person who is working two, maybe three part-time jobs in order to make ends meet, who has a deep committed relationship with my family that includes obligations to maybe, maybe it's my job to pick up my cousin from after school care three days a week. And I need to do that, right? It doesn't matter that I'm in college and I'm, I got my own college thing going on. I'm still living up and living up to and honoring family obligations and commitments that are very meaningful to me. I'm also working for money because I'm not free from economic um, uh, concerns. And something like a due date that is so solid and fixed and has to be turned in by this one, like there's no flex, there's that, that does not, uh, these rigid due dates, right, for an example, mm-hmm. are, are not designed with assumptions about me as a student in mind. And that's some, these are things that we could change, right? Mm -hmm. I can have an assignment and I could have a series of days and you could pick the day that it's due or I don't know, right? We could be creative, but um, I hope that that long, um, yeah, that deep dive into one example helps um, clarify what, what I'm talking about. Like we built, we have built the university and every part of it assuming that students are one type of, in one, one type of um, social and economic position. Yes. Yes. And, and undergrad, especially undergrad, yeah. especially I teach in a graduate program and an online graduate program. And we, and I, I very much am aware that st- my students and I, I just wrapped up and I had, I had students, you know, that they have those domestic responsibilities they have, they are, you know, sometimes coming back for second careers or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for the gamut from a, a mother of two, you know, school-aged kids who are trying to remote learn and she's working to a, a woman who's taking care of her 95-year-old uh, mother, a caregiver, full-time caregiver to a 95-year-old. And so, you know, I feel like sometimes depending on the, the structure of the program or the level, uh, we, we might be a bit more forgiving, but for traditional undergrad, a lot of times, um, like you said, we kind of have this typical college student idea in mind. Um, and, and the flexibility isn't always there or the understanding. Um, and, and what does that mean for, does, you know, in terms of what does giving one day or a day or two option, does that, that doesn't reflect their level of understanding, you know, but it helps them be able to demonstrate their level of understanding more. Um, so, uh, that's a great example. Thank you. I wanted to highlight too, one of the, one of this, um, strategies that you offer. It's strategy eight that I, that I really liked because as I mentioned that I, I have worked, um, with students, um, who are in academic jeopardy and lots of, um, I've worked in with programs specifically designed for first gen students. And so I, I, this book really resonated with me. And, and, um, so this strategy in particular strategy eight is the mini midterm in week two. I loved this strategy because, because of all this work that I have done with students. And I know sometimes how, um, how, we know how that goes and you name it very clearly in the book that, you know, a lot of times it's, it's not till midterm that students really understand, um, you know, what the test experience is like. And then if they have two weeks after the actual midterm to get their grade back, I mean, you are eight to 10 weeks into that semester and, and there's, there's not a whole lot sometimes that can be, can be salvaged. And so, um, I, this strategy and so many others in the book, I feel like we're spot on in terms of how of, of really practical ideas for addressing some of these 
um, challenges for students. Um, and, and some of these are not just first gen student challenges. These can definitely be continuing gen as well. Um, just, you know, and first year, first year, um, uh, first year student, uh, experiences. So could you talk a little bit, maybe explain that strategy a little bit for listeners and, and why that's so important? Yeah, thank you. Um, you summed up well the rationale behind it. Students, so many students that I interviewed had just a disastrous midterm or maybe multiple disastrous midterms in their first semester or even their second semester. Um, and exactly as you said, it wasn't until they got that F or that D um, back, which is heartbreaking and emotionally traumatic it wasn't until that point that they realized, oh my gosh, I'm not studying properly for this class. I guess I'm not taking the right notes. I guess I'm not preparing right for the exam. You know, I need to make some changes. But it's this traumatic experience. And as you said, it's often very late in the game that a mm-hmm. midterm happens and then the midterm is graded and returned. That takes even more time. So it's really late in the game. Um, and we can just um, help resolve that problem mm-hmm. by giving a teeny tiny, a teeny tiny version of your real exam, right? Whatever you're examined, my, mine are open-ended questions, but timed in class for my introductory class. So where on a midterm, I might have five on the mini midterm, I have one. And I recommend that we give them any midterm in week two, maybe the beginning of week three, but really early so that students, um, there's not a lot of material that's been covered. They don't have to study for hours and hours for this, but they can get a real honest, clear look at what kinds of questions I ask, what I'm looking for in the answers. And also, were they taking the right kinds of notes? Were they underlining the right kinds of things in the text? Were they able to glean from my lecture slides? Like, were they putting all the pieces together from that week or two of content in a way that allowed them to succeed on my exam? And if not, let's make some changes. Let's figure this out. Um, And Students have expressed so much gratitude for the mini midterm. I mean, I had never done that before. It was listening to students in my interviews talk about their disastrous, heartbreaking. I mean, so many students break down in tears talking about this terrible F or D or for some students, even a C. But yeah, heartbreaking moments for them. Well, and it's devastating for their, um, I, I use this term a lot for students, their academic self-efficacy. I mean, just this idea that like what you're saying, like, which I think is, is, is akin to some level of the academic belonging that you write about is this, I can do this. Like my, my academic self-efficacy, I have the ability to do this. I can do this. It's just so deflating, so yeah. deflating to that. And then not having a lot of time to recover and, and redeem yourself in that same course or same semester. Um, is and so that's why I, I I did I love that I think that's such a, a great great um, strategy to to um, you know mitigate this very common reality for both first gen I mean just for first year students um, in general and honestly I, I I'd say going going through because one of the things we do each semester right I I learned this and or I figured this out in college is the first exam was always the hardest because you're figuring out how this professor gives exams and what they're looking for and what they're, you know, especially if it's not very clearly stated and you do that every semester um, or every time you have a new professor. So that's not just a first year um, student thing that's, you know, continuing. So if every professor did that, then that would really help, you know, 
help students get acclimated to the, to the course, to your style of teaching, to what you're looking for, that sort of thing. And I think it's just a great strategy. Um, I wanted to talk also about um, strategy six that you talked about, about starting, start practicing new habits of speech. Um, and you encourage faculty to help students make the transition to college academics by talking about campus resources in positive ways rather than as a last resort. And again, I was very drawn to this strategy because I did do student um, uh, success work and in an academic support unit. And, and this um, aligns with like this idea aligns very much with what our colleagues across campus in student support services are trying to do. And so, um, you know, having, having faculty change their language, having faculty um, use positive language to support these these programs is huge. So the example from my my background is um, when I worked in that unit, our signature program was a drop-in group peer tutoring program, and it was huge. Um, it was the main pro, uh, service for the whole university, and it targeted first and second year students. And we used to tell students all the time out of our unit, um, come often and come early. Come early, come often, we would say, because we knew that students who used that service had higher GPAs than those who didn't based on our data. And that was across the academic uh, spectrum. So students who were already A students were even, you know, were even stronger students after using that service. And students who were C's and D students were stronger students. So it didn't just serve students who were struggling. Um, it served all students well. And um, and and that was based on the data at, at that particular university at that time. But I'm going to make a leap and say, you know, if you have a strong support uh, service like that, that that would be true for for most institutions. Um, so I appreciate that you address the ways that faculty can support both the student in doing that and also our colleagues across campus who are working in student support services just by changing our language, just by changing the way that we talk about these things um, and encouraging everyone to use them, that this is what we said, this is what successful students do. They use these, they partake of these free services that are available. And it's not just if you're struggling or failing or, you know, trying to eliminate that stigma attached to student support services sometimes. Have you found that these um, strategies have helped build bridges with your colleagues across campus? Um, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I can't say that my strategies were the impulse behind some of the connections that have been built in um, recent years, but it's definitely part uh, I hope that it's part of the conversation. So for example, we have a student support services, the SSS TRIO program on campus. And the last few years, they've been inviting faculty to hold one of their office hours in the SSS lounge. And that's been a really, I did it. It's, it's a really fun example of how um, some of these partnerships and collaborations with colleagues across campus can happen with faculty um, but I, I really appreciate you pointing out this um, shift in language piece because I, I'm not sure that faculty are always, myself included, always aware of just the way that we, we phrase something can make a big difference in how students mm -hmm. receive it. But also throughout the book, um, the heart of many of these strategies is to communicate a, a clear sense to our students that we care about their success. We're in their corner. We haven't given up on them, right? Mm -hmm. we, um, we, we, we believe in them. They've got, they've got what it takes. Now, not everyone is going to pass the class. Not everyone is going to get an A for sure. But um, to just communicate the sense that um, I'm, 
I be, you know, I believe in you, I guess. I'm rooting is the hard for you, yeah, right? I'm rooting, like, I'm rooting for, for you. For you. <laughs> yeah. And one of the, you pointed to a really easy way to do that. It's to not say, hey, come see me in office hours if you have any questions. Not say, there's a tutoring center, you know, right down the hall here if you need help. That's not the, but to say instead, why don't you come into my office hour and just sit there and do your homework or do it in the hall right outside. And then I'm right there. I'm right there if you have a question. Go in the tutoring, like maybe you don't know if you need, if you have questions, just take your homework in there, take your homework into the tutoring center, do it in there. And then all you have to do is raise your hand if you've got a question or a stumbling block that um, you could use a little help with. Exactly. Exactly. So I wanted, um, I, I wanted to kind of, in the next few questions, uh, I wanted to highlight a couple strategies, one from the beginning um, of, of a term and then middle and, and, and towards the end. So so your strategy for week one is to introduce yourself, which we all know to do, right? We all, we all know to do that. But your twist is not to introduce your professional self. You, you suggest introducing yourself as a person to your students. Um, can you talk a bit, a bit more about that strategy and why that's an effective strategy? Yeah. And can I tell you that this is something that I did very poorly and awkwardly before this research project, that hearing <laughs> students talk about this stuff cha- changed my ways. So... Um, yes, I used to very awkwardly introduce myself and um, what I researched. And, you know, I had this little awkward professional bio that I would give at the start of class. And then I would just move on into the content because that's where I felt more, I don't know, at ease or confident or I don't know what it was that was making me so awkward. But what I learned from these interviews and what's driving several of the strategies, including this one, number one, is that students told me over and over again in different kinds of ways how much they appreciate it when a professor bothers to share a detail or two about their lives with them or with the whole class or, you know, maybe with them one-on-one in an office hour or hallway conversation, but how meaningful it is to feel like the professor isn't too busy for them, isn't too important for them, isn't too, um, you know, have other things going on because that's how many students feel, first-gen students especially, but also lots of continuing-gen students felt like they didn't want to bother their professor. They didn't want to, like, the professor, she's got so much, you know, she's got so many things, but she's so busy. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go ask a question. They feel this sense of intimidation and a big distance and gap between the authority. And it's often out of deep respect. The student Mm -hmm. doesn't engage or with the professor at all because out of respect for their time and their, their status and their, um, the, the importance of the, <laughs> the important seemingness of the faculty member. Okay. So in all kinds of ways, students told me that when, when I as a faculty member bother to like share a detail about my life, it makes the student feel seen. It makes the student feel so it's all about belonging, right? It makes them feel like, wow, I, I'm an important enough person yes. for, for her to share something with. Mm. And they love it when we do it in class. They, they want to know, what's the name of my dog? They want to know, what did I do this weekend? They want to know, what's my favorite ice cream flavor, right? Like, I don't, need to talk, I don't need to share deeply personal things to connect with them. They're happy to connect on just like, you know, do I have kids? Do I live in the t- same town as the college? Do I like what? It's just the 
these things. So starting off on day one is a strategy I recommend to just kick this off and to practice it in all kinds of ways. Um, later in the book, I suggest, well, uh, not too much later, I think it's week two or something, um, that I suggest sharing some um, stories about your own college days, right, mm -hmm. as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And later in the book, I suggest sharing some stories of woe from your college days because students are going through hardships and heartbreaks and failures and rejections. And it's nice to hear that a professor, someone that they admire so much, also had some you know, bad grades in college or a bad roommate in college or a bad decision in college, um, they, yeah, they, they relish this. It, it, it builds belonging. Hmm. Thank you. And, and so to kind of speed up into week eight, um, your suggestion is to collect mid-semester feedback with KQS cards, as, as you call them. Can you can you sort of elaborate on what on what that is and what those cards are and how you use those? Yeah, KQS. So I didn't invent this. I learned it from the, uh, off the internet, and um, I use, as recommended by this wonderful internet source, I use index cards when we were in person because they're small. There's not a lot of real estate. Students really have to, you know, decide what they want to focus on to give you feedback on. But the K is for keep. So I ask them to tell me one thing that they want me to keep doing, and then. Um, the Q is for quit. So one thing they want me to quit doing and the S is for start. One thing they want me to start doing. So I hand out these cards. I put KQS up on the board. I give them a few minutes. It's anonymous. I collect them back. Now, I have to be willing to actually make some changes if enough students suggest um, the same, you know, the same kind of thing. But also I'm in control of whether or not it's pedagogically um, sound to make some of the changes that they recommend, which is not always true, all of that. But the point of collecting mid-semester feedback is partly so that I can improve my class to better meet the needs of my students, to better fit with, um, to hear about things that I just might not know are problems or struggle points for them, and also to hear about things that they really love so I can be sure not to squeeze those things out if I feel short on time toward the end of the semester. So it's to improve the class, of course, but what it also does is it shows students that I don't think I'm perfect. I don't think this class is perfect and I'm willing to make some changes to improve it. And that's exactly the same thing that we're asking students to do. We're demanding that they do every time we give them back a graded assignment or a test. We're saying, here's what you did well, here's what you did wrong, work on it. You, or maybe disastrous grade, right? You're doing a lot of things wrong. You better, you better make some real changes to be able to pass this class. And to just reciprocate that one day, one for five minutes in the middle of the semester somewhere. But then, of course, to come back with the results and share out the results from the KQSs and to share out whatever small or big changes you're willing to make. Hmm. Well, I also loved this strategy because, and I'm sure, I think you do talk about this in the book is that, you know, we, as faculty, we, you know, we get the, 
we we get those end of you know our our course evaluations of course and then but that only benefits the next term the next group of students and and I just did a major uh, revision to one of one of the classes I teach and and everybody loved it loved it and I I feel like I want to email back to all the students in the last term and say whoever suggested this everybody's loving it thank you so much um and so it, doing this midterm gives you a chance to actually do changes in real time that benefit that group of students um, for that course. And and that was one of the reasons I loved it too, um, as, as a great strategy. Um, so you kind of already alluded to this, but I, I did want to hit on real quick because I, I also was really drawn to this strategy. It's in week 14, and, and you did allude to this already, this idea of a CV of failures, um, sharing a CV of failures in class to model learning from our failures. And I love this as well, because again, I, I have a, a, a strong background in working with students who are who have um, been in jeopardy or, or are coming off of uh, academic probation, who are in academic jeopardy and who are struggling to figure out, do I fit? Should I be here? Why am I here? And I think, I think it's a human thing. I think students definitely do it, especially when they're looking at someone who's successful. And if you're teaching a course in your faculty, like you're successful in what you do, you've made it that far. And so I think we have this tendency to kind of think, they never made a mistake, right? I mean, we know that's probably not true, but you tend to feel like you're the only one. So then, you know, seeing on paper a whole CV, not of all of our my successes, not a resume of all the great things I've done, but of all the, all of the missteps or things that didn't work out as I planned, and then being able to even talk through how those were not even failures if we learned from them. I try to teach my, my eight-year-old son this all the time. There's really not a, fa- it's not a failure if you learn from this. If there's a lesson, then it's a, it's a complete success, you know, in a different way. Um, and so I think, you know, doing that with college students is so important, um, especially as they're, as you said, is trying to figure out, do I fit here? And, and if I've just made some mistakes and doing, and so can you talk about that and why that's important in week 14? Yeah, um, toward the end of the semester, students are, especially the, right, I was interviewing first year students in particular. So especially for students who are newer to college, but I think it's true for everyone. The end of the semester, we're exhausted. All of us are. Um, And for students who are struggling to kind of pull a grade up um, from disaster in a class or two, right? There's an extra element of stress. Everything is just kind of snowballing. And so it's, I think it's particularly useful toward the end of the semester to engage in a lot of small conversations or small activities that just acknowledge how, um, how rough it is in so many aspects of the, the, you know, our lives at the end of the academic semester. Um, and the CV of failure. So I think it's a good time um, at the toward the end because it's also a morale booster moving into finals, right? To get a to get a little boost of encouragement and energy moving into finals. But it's mm-hmm. bigger, right? It's not just about this one class. Just like you were saying, it's this bigger life picture of um, us as faculty members normalizing failures, normalizing the struggle, exactly like you're saying, students feel like they're the only one that they're all, it's so lonely to be, to be struggling. It's such a lonely place to be and to hear or to read, um, your own faculty members, 
big long list of things that did not go their way. <laughs> and to see, you know, look, she made it. Look at her, yeah. you know, she she mm -hmm. ended up successful in life despite all of these things. It, it's just very, it's very validating. But I also want to say one more thing about this activity. When I was first doing those weekly email blasts to my own campus, um, I th this idea was there, right? At this same time in the semester, a CV of failures, but the examples that I gave were all for examples from online, right? I didn't invent this idea. It's, it's out there. It's a, it's a wonderful, um, well-established idea, the CV of failures. I was not brave enough to write my own. And a colleague of mine, his name's Drew Talley, he's wonderful, he sent me an email with the CV of failures. He wrote about himself that he shared with his students and he thought that I might get a kick out of it. So he shared his with me. Um, and I just laughed at myself. I thought if Drew Talley can write this up so easily and be so light about it that he's sharing it around, I can write one of my own. And I wrote one and I was not brave enough to share it with my students. <laughs> <laughs> it took, and um, it it took an, like through this process of deciding that I would try to publish all these things into this book, and um, yeah, it I had to give myself a pep talk to be able to say, okay, you're gonna put that, you're gonna put your own example in that book. You're not gonna put a bunch of links to other people's stuff, and so I'm just sharing this story because I. None of this book came from a place of me feeling like, oh, I know how people should be teaching their classes and I'm good at this. I should share my wisdom with other people about how to be an excellent um, relationship builder with students. No, I, I wrote this book with a great deal of humility because mm -hmm. I... I was not doing these things well. And the, the conversations with students and these interviews helped me learn what I could do better. And um, yeah, the CV of failures was a challenge for me, but it's in there and everyone can it read is. it. <laughs> it is. And it's brave. It's very counterintuitive to how we are trained our entire lives. So in fairness, it is probably not just you. It is very counterintuitive to, you know, um, how, how we are, especially in the Academy, especially in the Academy, I feel like. So um but I really appreciated it. And, and it, and, and I loved that it was, it was, it was yours. When I read that, I was like, Oh, this is hers. This is great. And, and again, that we, you know, model for students, what we're talking about, that we really, we can live it and model it. Um, we have just a few minutes left for a couple other questions. Um, so I know from doing student success work myself, that sometimes there can be pushback from faculty who feel it's not their job to teach students how to study or how to spend their class time or spend their class time on success like oriented strategies, right? I, I know that, that that perspective is out there. Have you received any feedback along those lines or 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 pushback like that? And and what is your response to that kind of a mindset? What would you say to that kind of a mindset? Yeah, I sure have received that. I must say on my own campus more than anywhere else. And that's probably just because, you know, I'm a known entity there. And so people might feel more comfortable. I don't know. Mm -hmm. When I'm invited to other campuses, the folks who come to the workshop or the talk almost never challenge me in this way. But that's okay. Um, maybe it's they're being polite to the guest. Well, it's also um, self-selection probably. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, I think that has something to do with it. So um, what's my response? My response is, okay. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're sure that 
building relationships is absolutely outside your job description. This um, might not be very helpful, but like I don't, I, I don't know where to go with that. Mm-hmm. But it is part of teaching is the part where you have students <laughs> that you are reaching with your with your knowledge and with the you know skill built skills building that you're trying to create for them. And um, to me, I. I relationships with students is just part and parcel. Now we don't have to be best friends. That's not where I'm going with this. Um, But if we can think about our students in the same way that we think about people in our family or in our neighborhood that we care about and just, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, Just recognize that a little bit of encouragement, two minutes, sort of lingering around the classroom at the end, looking available so that someone might, you know, feel brave enough to come up and ask us a question. Those kinds of small things um, build a sense of confidence and safety and encouragement for students in ways that I think it is part of our job. Well, I love that I asked you about student, like when you get pushback on student success, like success oriented strategies, and you went right to relationship building because it's one in the same in a lot of ways. And I, I love that, that, that because I think students are more receptive to hear and to like take a deep breath and, and sink into their seat a little bit more comfortably when they feel comfortable in that classroom and in that space, they can kind of relax and ease into the learning. And, and, and that comes out of feeling connected and, and that you belong and in relationship. And so, um, you know, those two, those two pieces of, of being success, you know, intentionally focusing on student success and strategies to do that. And the relationship building are, are intricately connected. And so I, I kind of love that you, that you went the relationship route and I, and I agree. So, um, so thank you for that. Um, I, I, uh, last, um, kind of towards the last question here, um, by the time this episode airs or for, you know, um, this summer, um, and we're recording at the end of May, um, uh, 2021, or for those who are listening in after the semester has begun, whenever they find this episode, um, faculty will have already planned their syllabi. Um, but this, you know, I love this book because there are so many effective strategies that can be implemented as the semester is beginning or already underway. So you can kind of get the book and pull it off the shelf and, and just, you know, find some great things. So what are, what are your suggestions for where faculty should start, or maybe your kind of like top three strategies for getting started? What, what would be some of those that you would recommend if, if someone's feeling like, well, I'm not sure where to begin with this, or they don't want to dive in and do the whole thing. Um, do you have recommendations for where to begin? Yeah, I would say that mini midterm, if you've got the wherewithal or the time to be able to build that into your syllabus, into your timing, working in a mini midterm, or just do a mock one with the for no points or something. If you've, you know, come to the, to the idea after your syllabus is um, set in stone. Um, But then also I would pick maybe just three days in the semester, just, just three. And you don't even have to do the activity or the strategies on the same week that I recommend them, of course, you know, feel, feel free, but find a, find a strategy that, that um, fits with the way that you like to interact with students, your own teaching style. And maybe it's um, like sharing stress 
root, uh, stress relieving routine. So pick a day and you're got, give yourself five minutes in class to just talk a little bit about how you manage stress and give your students some tips or invite them along on a hike or something um, if you want to go that far. And then, you know, um, yeah, so so start small, right? Pick three, browse the book, just flip through the pages and open one and see if you like that thing, whatever's on that page. And uh, mark your calendar somewhere to be able to just set aside five minutes or 10 minutes to implement it. Great. Final question. Um, what would you say has surprised you the most as you've done this, this work uh, with this book? Wow, that's a question. Nothing is um, immediately popping to my mind. I, or maybe I the I, most enjoyable aspect about about writing this book and doing this work. Okay, so all yes. So this, these interviews with students, articulating their ideas into concrete strategies, um, has given me permission to take time to prioritize some of these, what I would think of before as small conversations or things that might take place outside of the classroom. But again, like I was just describing to take carve out five minutes and say, tomorrow I'm doing this, right? I don't care how much conversation we need to have about the content. I'm taking five, maybe 10 minutes to just prioritize this. And it's really given me again, permission to prioritize thinking about my students, doing a little connecting um, with them in the class, not waiting for office hours, not waiting to bump into them in the halls. Um, I, think I, I think I struggled before to, un, to really be able to say this is important enough to quote unquote take away from class time because mm -hmm. now I fully recognize it is not taking away from class time. It is allowing students to feel um, good in a way that allows them to really be present for the lecture, the discussion, the activity, the tasks in class. It allows them to really be open and um, like learn and absorb more. It's absolutely not um, a zero sum game with the, the minutes of class time and whether we devote them to me lecturing or having discussions like these. Mm. Great. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for being on the, the show again and for sharing with us about this book. Um, it's It's been great having you. Thank you. I am just delighted that this work has resonated with you and with other folks who may be hearing about it for the first time. I hope it resonates with them too. That Yeah. That's thank you. Yeah, thank you. We've been talking with Lisa Nunn about her new book, 33 Simple Strategies for Faculty, a week-by-week -week resource for teaching first-year and first-generation students. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.